ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, joining us tonight, uh, we have the great Warwick Hatfield, journalist, <laughs> sports writer, author and raconteur. He uh, presents Sports Analysis Daily on RN Breakfast, but on Nightlife, of course, the chance to have some longer chats about issues relating to sport and life with a bit more depth. Warwick, good evening to you. Welcome to Nightlife. It's wonderful to be here. I've been a, a listener for a long time, so it's nice to be on the other side of the microphone. Excellent, yes. No, welcome to Late Night Live Life as well. Big weekend of sport just passed, of course. You're, you're a close follower of the cricket. We were making plans tonight for a, <laughs> a, uh, a rather longer match than we, than we thought. Uh, that didn't happen. What, what, do you make of the, what have you made of the West Indies tour anyway? Um, oh look, it should have been three tests instead of this uh, meaningless uh, one-day yeah. series. Mm. Uh, given what Lamar Joseph, uh, Shamar Joseph did in, uh, with the Gabba, it was all perfectly set up to have a third test, even though he probably wouldn't have taken part in it because of that celebrity toe of his. <laughs> He's gone home. You know the story of, of him and his little town in um, Guyana, I'm no, sure, by now. Tell, the, tell me. Well, population 300, takes two days uh, in a boat to get there. Um, because uh, you know they, they the, his parents got to watch him take those seven wickets in the second dig on a, a phone because there's very few television sets and very limited communication. But there was one someone had charged a phone and it was working well enough for sisters, brothers, and uh, family to sit around and watch them uh, watch it, the game on the on the phone mm. and yeah, there was lots of cheering and apparently lots of celebrations apparently in Barakara when someone does something wonderful the celebration is mostly eating mangoes and watermelons and, and other food and that happened uh, and the West Indies of course won that test match uh, famously and there was much hope of an invigoration of uh, West Indian cricket as a result of that but what's just happened today West Indies in a one day uh, mm. bowled out for 86 and yeah. uh, Xavier Bartlett's taken four more wickets this young fast bowler who swings the ball, swings it beautifully. And, you know, when you do have a, a, a bowler who can swing the ball, if you think back to, to Terry Alderman, and mm. there have been plenty of others as well, but Terry Alderman particularly, the damage he did on an Ashes tour, it really is hard for for batters, male and female, too, uh, to, to really be able to deal with it if they're good enough. And, and this young fellow, Xavier Bartlett, is showing every sign of being good enough. So perhaps a uh, you know, um, continuation of the triumvirate from New South Wales when, when Stark and Cummins and Hazelwood are no longer mm. fit and able. These young people are coming through. And this is kind of what this one-day series is really all about. It's um, Steve Smith's home brand against the West Indians' no-names, really. Uh, right. There's lots of young I mean, there was a lot of... Sides. That's right. I mean, the enthusiasm about the West Indian victory, of course, was all... You know, because we, we it's we wish it's wish fulfilment, isn't it? We we really want the West Indies to be the force that they were because they were such a colourful and fantastic force in 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 world cricket. They no longer are for all sorts of reasons, and we kind well, of hope, also, we kind of hoped it wasn't. You know that it, that maybe it was there was a resurgence, but maybe there's not actually. Well, they're also a great source of revenue for Australian cricket back in the yeah. day in the eighties. They seem to be here every. Every season or every second season, and um, and of course they made a lot of money themselves. I remember Clive Lloyd, the former West Indian captain, once telling me his modus operandi to keep his fire players um, disciplined and firing was the more you do for me, the more I can do for you. And uh, on one particular tour, I remember going into the 
the room of the uh, the manager, Wes Hall and uh, Cameron Wilberforce Smith, one of the wonderful West Indian names, that one. And there was just this pile, absolute pile of $20 notes. <laughs> I've never got round to asking them how they got them out of the country. But certainly um, the, the, there was a lot of money in West Indian cricket then and a lot of discipline and a lot of wonderful cricketers. So that's all fallen away. And we all know the story about Brian Lara and Ian Bishop and Carl Hooper crying after that win at the Gabba because mm. they've been through, been through so much pain uh, in recent times. They did win a, some well some T20 competitions and so on, but generally, Test cricket and one day cricket's really suffered badly in the West yeah. Indies. Yeah, I mean, is it ever coming back, or is it the West Indies? I mean, because the, the, the the argument goes that young you know athletes in the West Indies are into basketball or they go to America. Yep. And, well, and that's, not really, that's not really going to change. I was in the gym where there was a West Indian uh, basketballer who was uh, as an import playing here in Geelong, and I you know, got to know him quite well. And I said, well, what about cricket? Isn't cricket the game of, uh, of the Caribbean? And he said, man, that little ball hurt too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, yeah. But yes, you're right. It's the, fo- the, the, great, the great footprint, the satellite footprint, of course, is, is American basketball going yeah. into the Caribbean. Far more now, far more powerfully now, I guess, than whatever might come out of emanate from Australia or England in, in terms of cricket. Uh, the great, I mean, you know, Jamaica is no longer part of the uh, the Commonwealth, or you know, they've become independent. I think I can't remember. There was a, a, a ceremony with um, Prince William driving in a car with, as as Jamaica took on some new role with the president and things like that. And yeah, look, the the, you know, the days of the British Empire are, are well and truly over. But the, the the story of Indian cricket, I think, is still essential to the game, remembering that um, people like Larry Constantine, um, his grandfather was a slave, and I know that some of the, the West Indians of Viv Richard's era really felt that yoke, uh, mm. or, or their role, their, they had an important role in removing totally that yoke, and it's a, a quite a colourful thing that the only two things that um, unite the Caribbean islands are the University of the West Indies and their cricket team. So. Yeah. You know, it's got a lot to to do. Um, it got a lot. It's given an awful lot to cricket, and it would be sad to see it fall away completely. So, yeah, look, I mean, I think <laughs> I think most Australians were uh, very very supportive of that win. They'd like the West Indies to be good again, but not not too good. Warwick Hadfield's with us. We're talking uh, the week in sport with Warwick's weekly wash up. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, mucking a, I'm mucking around with titles here. Yeah, the well, the original www of course was Weeks Walcott and Worrell from the West Indies, and then <laughs> along came the internet and stole. <laughs> stole. Hey, their, speaking uh, of cricket, W's. there's a big drama in local cricket uh, over yes, a new yes. scoring platform. It's oh, called yes, Play it's... HQ. Now, in short, what's what's in short the, the days of sitting there with your pencil as a scorer, yeah. filling out. The big format page, I don't know what it's an A3 book or something, it's a big thing. Yep, wonderful. And book. you filled out every every ball and LBW and scores, etc. It was a work of art and uh, mm. required experienced people to do it. That's all been replaced with a new electronic system. Ha ha, here's the modern world. Uh, but it yeah. don't work, apparently. Well, that's it's not working properly. Um, the and, and already lots of scorers are going straight back to the pencil and the scorebook, but it's... Uh, look, it, I've, I've been on the committee of a, a local cricket club for 18 years and I know how hard it is to get volunteers. And what volunteers have been asked to do with the implementation of this new thing called Play HQ is go off and learn how to use it. And, um, it, oh, it's going to replace the scorebook. It's all going to be wonderful. But, of course, it hasn't been. It doesn't work properly. And now players, are, you have to find an extra volunteer, one to do the old scorebook and one to do, do play, play HQ if and when it's working. 
Uh, and it's really, uh, the, the, today Roy Masters in the Sydney Morning Herald and Gideon Haig is one of the people quoted in that. They've given the system, uh, the pasting uh, it absolutely deserves. Uh, it, it's not worked properly. It's not worked properly for two years. And my view is that someone's sort of came up, came up with a good idea mm -hmm. uh, to make a lot of money. And it is probably a good idea if it ever worked properly. But I think they've rushed it in and not tested it properly. And as a result of that, an awful lot of people, and I reckon a lot of people listening, there'd be a lot of people all over your listener, listening area would be sporting administrators. And it's not just applied to sport. This, this applies to AFL basketball. This system's being used across a wide range of sports. You'll be absolutely frustrated. And on top of all this, you're actually paying quite a lot of money for each registered person for the privilege of using this thing. Who owns this thing? Work. I mean, who's, who's, where, where's it come from? Well, it's uh, it's a company called Play HQ. Mm. The chair of that is James Sutherland, who just happens to be oh, a former okay. chief executive of yeah. Cricket Australia and uh, a director of an AFL club, not very far from where I'm speaking to you. There's a, you know, there's a, a, an overarching company as well, but uh, they've got a chief executive by the name of Tim McKinnon, who's been out and about the last few days trying to defend it. He says there are um, something like uh, 2 million people signed up, but that the, the the answer to that is, yeah, but if you didn't sign up, you couldn't play. Mm. And if you didn't pay the $21, you couldn't play either. So uh, anyway, he's, he's out defending his, his, uh, his system. Mm. But uh, from my point of view and from watching the people down at my cricket club and hearing about all these other examples, and I'm sure there's, if there's someone out there listening who's having the, yeah, the same that. problem, I'm sure you'd love to take a call because this is, this is big. Because uh, this goes to the very heart of cricket at the moment there's a huge debate going on in cricket about whether to play one day games and two day games because of the modern lifestyle where people have less um, spare time there's all sorts of things going on whether cricket numbers are declining or not depends who you're talking to but it gets harder and harder not so much to find players although that's not easy a lot of the time either but to find administrators because more and more sporting clubs whether it's a cricket club or a tennis club or whatever it is they're finding layers and layers of administration coming in and you need a you need to almost need a chartered accountant to do your um uh to do your accounts these days and you almost need a lawyer to be your secretary or your, or your chair yeah i wonder if, well if anybody has you've been using this system or come across it or wants to say to me give, give us a call uh one three is our number warwick the nrl we're talking to warwick hadfield about various matters uh, the NRL, the North Sydney Bears. <laughs> Come on. <Yeah. laughs> now, they're, they're, well, a, they're a club that was, but, I mean, you know, a bit like a shadowy presence <laughs> that doesn't ever seem to go away. They're, they, they're a foundation club that was, Philip, and that's, <laughs> that's where I think... They exited, they exited following the 1999 season, and that they was did, it. And, and that, that was, was it. And that, well, yeah, they still exist in the second division and they've still got a leagues club in North Sydney mm. and they've got a cricket mm. club attached to that leagues mm. club because I played for it. But, they've, um, but look, they went out uh, ingloriously in part because of the Super League revolution, in part because they didn't plan uh, a, a move to the central coast of New South Wales particularly well, and also because there are a lot of bean counters in, in rugby league headquarters at that time who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And the value of a club like North Sydney was extraordinary, being a, a foundation club. Remembering what they tried to do to Balmain and Wests and also South Sydney. Now, South Sydney survived because they had, a, I guess, a more vocal supporter group and a larger supporter group. A lot of my 
friends um, boycotted a certain Sydney newspaper, the, which is also known as the Rugby League News Sheet, in protest of what uh, the Rugby League and News Limited were trying to do to South Sydney. And I think the bottom line was hurt a little bit uh, at, at that newspaper. And as a result of that, South Sydney survived. North Sydney didn't have quite that support and they have gone. But there's been this hardcore of uh, North Sydney people who still wanted to come back. And Peter Volandis, the chair of the Australian Rugby League Commission, gave them some hope in the last uh, few days by suggesting that one day North Sydney would come back, but it wouldn't be as North Sydney. It would be a relocated club, but it would... Uh, and the North Sydney people at the moment said, yes, we'll, we'll accept that as long as we get to keep the black and the red and the fabulous bear logo. Mm. So there's... There's some hope, but I think against all that, we've got to remember that the Australian government, uh, there is a, a move on to expand the National Rugby League to 18 Yeah, but it's, going to be that, but it's going to be a new guinea team, isn't it? Well, that's right. The Australian government is uh, wanting to push the Chinese out of the South Pacific, so they're putting money into this team out of Papua New Guinea, as uh, you know, the Prime Even though most of, the, most of the, the clubs don't want that, apparently. Yeah, I, I'm look. There'll be resistance because of the the travelling involved uh, and and, uh. and all those other things, and also because if there's a Papua New Guinea club with a, a feeder ground of uh, the South Pacific Islands, well, Penrith won't be able to go and get their next uh, number six from, uh, from no. Tonga or Fiji or whatever. So yes, what do you think? What is, is, there, is the PNG team a goer? Do you think it's, it would have been? Oh, look, uh, rugby league is huge, absolutely huge, and as long as it's given the right support. Uh, when they come in. I remember when Melbourne came in, everyone said, oh, that's not going to work. That's not mm. going to work. But the right people were put in place in with Melbourne, with Chris Anderson, the first coach, and uh, John Rebo de Brassic, uh, the former Newtown player who shortened his name to John Rebo, was the first administrator. And he was a very good sporting administrator. And so Melbourne was set up, got a good coach in Craig Bellamy. And they're, that's now, they're now part of the, um, the, the Melbourne firmament, uh, well and truly. I mean, a lot of my... A lot of my friends here in Geelong will travel up on a Saturday or Friday night to watch the Melbourne Storm and then come and watch Geelong play the next day. So mm. they're well and truly part of the that Melbourne uh, way of living. Because you know, Melbourne, of course, is a great city when it comes to supporting sport of any sort, as long as it's of a, a decent standard, mm. which is not happening so much with the Melbourne Rebels. in the. No, the speaking of the, that other rugby code, <laughs> rugby, the Melbourne Rebels in big debt, not going so well. Yeah, well, there's some argument about whether it's 15 million or 20 million at the moment, uh, but it's still a lot of money. The, and the major sponsor was the chair. Uh, his companies are, uh, are not in good shape. Apparently, I don't know, the figures get bandied around, but there's something like him. His company's owing 70 million. Uh, and it's not a good look. The, the players, uh, apparently, they've put together a pretty good list, and that seemed to be the case. Uh, when they beat New South Wales in a trial game on uh, on the weekend, and the Australian Rugby Football Union has guaranteed their salaries because they'd really need a five-time Super League competition to honour their broadcasting commitments. But I can't see at this stage you can't see the Melbourne Rebels last. No, now, beyond that. By the way, so there've been some tremendous female sports achievements over the past few weeks. <laughs> Winter sports Jakara Anthony has become Australia's most successful ever mogul skier. And how about yep. this uh, this sprinter, Tori Lewis, who's now the fastest yep. woman ever in Australia? Yep. Yeah, and uh, and Jessica Hull as well in the uh, 1500 metres in an indoor um, tournament in uh, in Boston in the last little while. So, But look, Jakara Anthony, it's a great story, really. She's born in Cairns, a well-known skiing centre. Mm. <laughs> she lives in Barwon Heads, uh, yet again, that's in uh, that sea change country, if you remember that particular television series. But uh, her parents apparently met on the slopes and uh, there was born this magical 
uh, this magical moment for Chikara Anthony, who's uh, just been beating. She's an Olympic gold medalist, remembering that from 2022. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but she's been setting these records in mogul skiing. You know, the the most ever by an Australian in any uh, World Cup uh, winter events, and also now equal with the most uh, mogul wins on the on the tour. And, yeah, it's a sensational sport, fun to watch. Yeah, I think it'd be much more interesting if they buried a few media moguls under the, those moguls. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, would, that would make it even more interesting. But, it's a, you know, it's all downhill at speed and, and fabulous. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, Jessica Hull, uh, she realised about halfway through last year that the age of 26, she still didn't have the – hadn't got into a body the hardness to compete against the more seasoned athletes over that 1,500 metres, 3,000 metres. So she's gone away and she's worked really, really hard in the last few months to get that, get all that into her body. And uh, she's run the sixth fastest indoor time uh, in, uh, in, in over the, uh, as I said, uh, in Boston over the weekend. But mm. she's really aiming. She said her plan was to get everything right for August when she'll be in Paris for the Olympics. So that's a good one. And uh, as for Tori, well, we just have to wait and see. We've, you know, I know we've had these people come flashing through before and they sometimes fade out. And particularly, we've had a history of of people running fast once, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, well, Patrick Johnson, uh, remember him? He came on Mm. the scene running in borrowed shoes. He set an Australian record and things like that. But, you know, had a few difficult moments and, and disappeared. So, yeah, you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen to Tori Lewis. I hope exactly the opposite happens because it's been a long time since we've really had some great Australian athletes compete and do well at the exactly. at the Olympics or at World Championships. And we were a long, long time ago. Remembering people like Herb Elliott, um, Ron Clark, John Land, my great friend John Landy. You know, we we dominated the, hmm. the 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 world really. I mean, one of the biggest television audiences in the history of te- early days of television was, in fact, the Commonwealth Games or the British Empire Games in Canada because Bannister was running against Landy and all of America tuned in. And there was, you know, as I say, an Australian take, taking the, the world stage in athletics, which hasn't happened, I don't think, for a long, long time. No. Warwick Hadfield's with us. We're uh, in the Warwick Weekly Wash-Up. Uh, <laughs> it's going to stick. WWW. I'm getting to like this. Um, Warwick, it's late. We'll let you go. But before we do, Gideon Hay, the... One of Australia's best cricket writers. Uh, as the, well in, Australia's best. Let's let's get it out there. I, I think he's Australia's the best cricket best. writer in the world. Yeah. Um, he, he's the he's the the amalgamation of uh, the great Ray Robbie Robinson and Sir Neville Cardis, in my view. He, yeah. Because he was born in England but grew up in Australia, he's got a little bit of both. He's got the beautiful English cricket writer's language, but that's just that little bit of hardness that Ray Robbie had as well. Anyway, he's got a new book out. Yep. And it tells the story of William Barlow Carkeek. Tell me the story. <laughs> well, William Barlow Carkeek played six tests in 1912 as a wicketkeeper. But his better story was, uh, well, the book's called The One discretion of my of his life and you know he was a bit of a rogue apparently there were quite a few things in his life uh, bankruptcies uh, divorce suits cohabitation with a, a femme, femme fatale as Gideon puts it uh, violent accidental deaths and so on and uh, look it was amazing that he survived. I mean, you know what it's like now. If, if a cricketer behaved like that in, in 2024, you know, the Australian yeah. Cricket Board or Cricket Australia show them the door. But he survived. And he survived in part because in the great dispute in 1912, um, he sided with the Australian Board of Control for International Cricket. They had a beautiful title back then. 
And But they realised they had a real uh, rogue. But anyway, it, it is the way of the great Gideon to go and find these uh, these stories and to write them up beautifully. If you read the the book he wrote on Victor Trumper, it was based on just that wonderful photograph of Trumper dancing down the wicket to play. I guess it would have been an, an on-drive or, or an off-drive. And Gideon just took that photo and then transmogrified it into a whole story. And one of the things that <laughs> really made me giggle almost what he found out was that trumper was related to the people who made the tires that was on lawrence of, of arabia's car when he rode it through the desert <laughs> <laughs> and that that is the way of gideon he goes out and he really researches these things and finds them. anyway gideon is no longer writing uh, as he was uh, last summer for the australian so he's now selling these books out of his uh, <laughs> out of his living room to try and make ends meet so if anyone would like to, to buy a copy of uh, bill carkeek's book or any of other gideon's books um, they can probably google him and uh, find out how to do that Good. 40 bucks for this particular book gideon hay exactly he always is a terrific writer um warwick uh we'll let you go but uh it's been fun let's do it again <laughs> well I, I haven't got to, i'll get a few hours sleep before i'm back with the uh, Patricia Carvellis and the rest of the team on ABC Radio Nationals. But uh, anyway, let's, we're going to do this again next week. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I, I know so. I think so. I'll, I'll, I'll have to get two alarms. <laughs> See you, Warwick. Good idea. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.